How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen. God is good all the time. What we're going to do this morning, well, I should, just in case you don't know who I am as a stranger here, my name is A.K. Kurabilla. I'm one of the elders here at Bayou City Fellowship. I attend Spring Branch Campus. So, as we worship God this morning, we're going to continue looking at what God has to tell us by turning to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We've been going through a study of Mark here, and um, we're at this point. Mark chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 1 through 30. Now, when you take any passage of Scripture, uh, we have to look at its context. Because if you don't know the context and the background, then all you get is a lot of data. So if you just pick up um, chapter 7, you'll get a lot of data. But when there is purpose and context, then you get information that you can act on and you can do something with it. So data alone, alone, alone won't work. So, for example, if my wife Susan tells me the garbage can is full, now that is good data, very high quality data, right? A 13-gallon hefty trash bag is full. There is no more place to stuff anything. If I put anything more, it's going to burst. It's good data. Now, I know because of the job description I have in our home that that statement means take the garbage out and put a new liner in. The data within the context, with a purpose, gives me information with which I act and do something. It's no different uh, uh, with language, with reading, uh, or with hearing people speak. It's the context and the purpose that allows us to see what God is trying to do, for example, in this passage of Scripture. So, if we were to look at the context, we would want to do, uh, look at what's behind it and what comes after it. So in, in chapter 6, we find that Jesus has taken five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000. It says 5,000 men, so probably a whole lot more people, but he has fed them. Uh, sardines and crackers, a few of them is all it took for him to feed with 12 baskets full, the Bible tells us. And then after that, he walks on water. That's miraculous. Uh, his disciples are in a boat. There is a storm. He walks on water, gets into the boat. The storm is still. So he performs that miracle. And then you find that he is in Gennesaret, and he is turned into a rock star because large crowds are coming to him. Uh, and when they, verse 54, chapter 6, and when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he t- entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his glo- cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So you have, uh, you have this enormous drawing of people. So that's what's happening right before this passage. Now, what you also find, something very interesting, right at about verse 24 in chapter 7 onwards, Jesus is moving to Gentile territory. 
So far, he is in Jewish territory, right? So, uh, chapter 6 and initial part of 7, he's in Jewish territory. And the Jews are known for being the people of God. They have the commandments. They have all the traditions. There is ritual purity. They're ceremonially clean and all of that stuff. Then you come into the Gentile world. There is ritual impurity. There is no cleanliness. There is defilement, ceremonially speaking. So you've got this passage moving from purity to impurity, and no surprise, this passage we're looking at, chapter 7, deals with cleanliness, defilement, purity, and impurity. And Jesus is going to show us what real defilement is all about. So as followers of Jesus then, what is it that defiles us? What is it that makes us unclean? And that's what we're going to see this morning. Verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Now we begin to wonder, what's that all about? Well, Mark is very good to us. He gives us an explanation in verse 3 and 4. In parenthesis, you see that in your Bible. He's an explanation of what this washing was all about. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So you see, these Pharisees, these are the guys who know the law, they've come to Jesus and they're asking him, they're not asking him, why are the disciples disobeying Old Testament commands? That's not what they're asking him. They're asking him, why are they not following the tradition of the elders. Jesus, you seem to be from God. You've, got, you've, you've demonstrated all this power and you're doing all these miraculous things and you've got disciples. So if that's something to do with God, you ought to be following the tradition of the elders. This doesn't make sense. Your disciples should be defiled because they don't wash their hands. That was the point that these Pharisees were making to Jesus. Jesus' response is just classic. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Ooh, that hurts. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So Jesus calls these questioners. He doesn't give them answers. He just says, you are hypocrites. Uh, hip hypocrites, he says there is lip service, you're saying some things, you're doing some things outwardly, but your hearts, your desires, your loves, they're far away from me. A hypocrite is typically one who looks one way on the outside, but is different on the inside. They were wearing masks that presented themselves as a certain pure type, but deep down, they were completely different from the way they appeared to you. So God, uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Uh, not only that, he says, your worship is worthless. It's meaningless. Why? Because you're teaching the doctrines 
as doctrines the precepts of men. Instead of focusing on what God is and the doctrine of who God is and what he has revealed, etc., in your scriptures, you take the precepts of men and that is what you're teaching. So, uh, if you were to think of it in today's terms, if they were here today, maybe you might say, these are guys who went to church uh, every Sunday because it was the right thing to do. We live in the South, our neighbors do it. You know, dad and mom did it, papa and mimi did it, so we go to church. Uh, They needed to be in church perhaps because babies were dedicated in church and marriages were conducted in church. Funeral services were performed. It's like the old cynic who said, what's the function of the church? It is to hatch, match, and dispatch, right? (laughs) So you just come to church. Uh, I want to bring my kids to church because I don't want them to go off the deep end, right? I mean, they need to get some religion in there. So there are any number of reasons. I give some money because somebody once told me, if you don't give 10%, you're not going to be blessed. So I put something in the plate. So there is this honoring of God with lips and with actions and every outward movement and and, and putting on a good face. They went through their motions, but their hearts were far away from God. Their affections were far away from God. Their desires never lined up with God. And that was the problem. And that would have reflected in their lives as well. So Jesus calls these Pharisees hypocrites, not because they were not following, not because following traditions was bad. That's not the problem. The problem is that their hearts were far away from God and they were pretending themselves to be absolutely pure and religious. Now we've got to ask the question, I mean, how would we describe ourselves? Are we going through the motions? Uh, or where are our hearts? Where are our affections? Where are our loves? What do they drive us? How do our desires move us? All of that We've got to, in, 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 in an introspective way, we've got to reflect on that and think about what uh, we are all about. Now you've got to wonder, okay, these are guys who knew the law, these Pharisees. Uh, you would think that they know better. I mean, why is it that they're working this way? Why are they, why are they so hypocritical? Well, uh, Jesus answers that with three powerful arguments, very progressive, powerful arguments. Watch this. First, verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Then you go to verse 9. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Nicely there, being very sarcastic, obviously. And then you go to verse 13. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. You neglect the commandment, you kind of leave it, you set aside the commandment, and then you invalidate the commandment, saying it doesn't exist. You annul the commandment, right? This is the progression. It's a very powerful progression. It starts by not paying attention to God's word, neglecting it, then pushing it away, particularly when it starts confronting you, and that stands in the way of something you and I don't want to do, And then if it really gets in the way of what I want to do, I say, it just doesn't exist. I don't believe in this stuff anymore. Now, now this happened, this happened not too long ago, a couple of weeks actually, with a couple that we know. Two small children, lives in this town. 
uh, the, uh, the young wife had gone on a girl's trip out the weekend, and then she came back on a Sunday evening. Uh, the husband says, look, I want out of the marriage. Uh, I really haven't been happy in this marriage lately, so I really want out of it. And I was told that he took all the Christian books in his home and sold it at half price books. Think about that. Now, I, I got to tell you, I didn't verify it yet, so that was what I was told. So, but regardless, think about what that does, right? Something stands in the way of what you want to do. You annul it, you invalidate it, you get it off your radar screen so that you and I can do what we want to do. That's the way we work. That's, that's human nature at its worst or at its best. That's the way it plays out. So, uh, he says the problem really is neglecting the commandment in favor of the tradition of men. You want to do something. You set aside the commandment and then you totally invalidate it and null it so that you can really do what you want to do. So, Jesus' answer raises a simple question then for each of us. Are we going through the motions of church life, and whatever that might be, or are hearts really engaged with God? Is there, a, is there a delight in looking at God's Word? Is there a delight in obedience, even when it is hard to do? And we've got to ask ourselves that question, because Jesus raises that. Now he goes on to show the Pharisees, with an example of how they do this twisting. And this is beautiful. Uh, verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now, honor your father and mother is one of the commandments. It's the commandment so that it may be well with you and your days may be long. The quality of life and the quantity of life is affected by that commandment. So the Bible says, right? So, it's, he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. So if anyone curse their parents, according to Old Testament law, they rightly deserved death and nothing short of that. But you say, so that's what God desires, but you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So what is this, korban? Korban is basically something that you vow as set apart and given for some godly purpose, say the temple or whatever else they had. So, the idea is, once you set something apart, then you say, I can't touch it because I have to keep my vows. That's what uh, Numbers 30 tells us. If I make a vow to God, I've got to keep it. So I say, I'm making this vow to God, so that is untouchable. So I have parents here who need my help, and I'm called to do that. And I say, oops, no, I have committed this to God, so I cannot touch this to help you. It was just a very clever way of manipulating these commands so that they could work around them to do what they wanted to do. So if I as, a, I, as a son, did not want to help my parents, I could take whatever is in my bank and say it is vowed to God. I don't have to give it, but it's vowed. 
then I don't have to use that to support my parents. This is the kind of thing that these guys used to do. No wonder Jesus called them hypocrites. So uh, the Pharisees did this with other things as well, as we read in uh, uh, verse 13, and you do many things such as that, um, other things other than food. And then Jesus goes on to show what real defilement is. He kind of pivots from there and he figures, okay, now I need to give a lesson on what real defilement is. Now, you know, with Jesus, he turns everything upside down, right? Turns it on its head. He says, if you want to live, go die. If you want to go up, go down. If you want to get, you start giving, right? So you could expect that when it comes to cleanliness and defilement, he's going to say something radical here. And, and, and you got to expect that because it's Jesus speaking. So after he called the crowd, verse 14, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So Jesus says, look, you know, the real problem of defilement and uncleanness and impurity it's not the stuff that you put in that makes you unclean. It, it's the stuff that comes out of you that makes you unclean. Now, that's radical, right? You normally think, well, whatever I put in, that's going to make me unclean. No. Jesus says, what comes out of you is what makes you unclean. And then we read in uh, verse 18 and uh, 18 that the disciples, they didn't get this thing, right? Are you so lacking in understanding also? Jesus asks. Do you not understand that what's, what, whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now Jesus is not saying that the law didn't hold. You know, in fact, in Leviticus there was a list of foods that were unclean. Right? Now, eating that stuff is not going to make you unclean. It's disobeying God and eating that is what is going to make you unclean, which is why Jesus declares all foods clean. Right? So obedience and disobedience is the difference between cleanliness and impurity. Right? So what does Jesus do then? He says the real defilement comes from the inside. And if you look at verses 21 through 23, he lists 12 vices. And bookends are evil thoughts. For example, uh, verse 21. Far from for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. And then you find in verse 23, all these evil things. So between the evil thoughts and the evil things, he's listed 12 vices. The first six are actions, and the next six are attitudes or traits. Four. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. Number one. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness. And then the next six. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, as followers of Jesus, what defiles us, he says, is what comes out of our hearts not what goes in. Now, let's think about it. Does that really make sense? I mean, how can what comes out of me defile me? 
How can my heart be the source of all evil? Does that make sense? Let's think about that. You know, we are primarily, the way God has created us, we are primarily worshipers. We are primarily lovers. We love things. We are primarily driven by our desires. Now, we may want to think, or we may think, that we are perfectly rational human beings. And not that we are irrational, but we cannot think of ourselves as being just a brain on some sticks. There are desires that drive us. And look, when desires drive us, and they rule us, and they control us, I don't care what stands in the way of my desire, I am no friends with that. I would eliminate everything that stands in the way of me fulfilling my desire. Now, it may be very subtle, it may be invalidating, or whatever else, but we are people who are driven by our desires, right? So James, for example, in chapter 4, really brings us out beautifully, and we can see that. Let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or desires that wage war in your members? You lust, that's your desire, and do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious because you don't have something that somebody else has and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Desires are driving behavior, right? You do not have because you do not ask. Now, James is not saying that desires are wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the problem comes when desires are battling for control of your actions. The problem is not that desires are evil, desires are all right, but when desires control and rule me, he says, that is a problem. So let's say, for example, I'm driving home from work. I've had a hard day at work, dealing with a lot of people issues. I'm mentally, I'm tired, emotionally spent. So uh, I can have two desires warring with me in my mind, right? One says, hey, it's so good to be home. I want to spend time with my family. The other one says, just leave me alone. Give me some quiet and peace. I just want to be alone. I'm just so tired. Now, this is going to battle in my soul, in my heart. Now, whichever desire wins... That's going to influence my action. Yes? So if the battle is won by the desire for peace and quiet, leave me alone, I'm not going to be friends with anybody at home who stands in the way of my desire. That's the way normal people are, but you guys might be different. (laughs) But this is how we work, right? Our desires control what we do. If people stand in the way of our desires, we tend to be frustrated with them. We tend to be angry with them. We may stop talking to them. We may do all kinds of things. If things stand in the way of our desires, we do other things to get rid of them. For example, it is not wrong for a wife to desire the tender affections of her husband. But if our days are spent in bitterness and our evenings are spent trying to manipulate to get attention, 
Now that is a problem because suddenly this desire is completely ruling this young lady. When desires rule us instead of God ruling us, then we have what James calls idolatry. And he says we are adulteresses. Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? This is spiritual adultery. When we don't give God his due, when we don't let God rule our actions and our desires, when we let our desires control and rule us, then we're committing adultery because we're placing our love in the wrong place. Instead of God, it's going to be on our desires, and the desires will then control us. Desires create demands, and before you know it, you need it, and then you expect it, and if the expectations are not met, there is disappointment. And there's, if there's disappointment, then there's punishment, subtle and real, and all kinds of things. Even kids do this, don't they? You know, our kids, when they were young, if they saw something that they really loved, mom and dad, we just love to have this. They're not coming to us and saying, you know, this is the desire of our hearts. I want this pair of shoes. Now, dad and mom, you know what's best for us. Uh, you know whether your budget, your book will allow this kind of purchase. So make the best decision that is best for us. This is not how they work. I need these pairs of shoes. I, I need it. If it, does, if it is not there, uh, they lose their lives. So, so if, if Santa Claus doesn't come down the chimney with these pairs of shoes, uh, there's disappointment and there's all kinds of reactions that take place. I mean, it's a very simple thing. But it is no different. It just gets very subtle when it comes to us adults, right? And, and, and we work the same way. When desires rule us, we run into trouble. We are led away by our desires. So, what is the solution? I mean, James has it. Uh, he says in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. There is a humility that submits and says, God, you are sovereign. I know it's painful. I want this. This is my desire driving me. But look, I recognize that you are sovereign. Your grace is sufficient. And willingly follow that instead of letting my desire completely rule me and control me. And purify your hands. Uh, he says that in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, etc. So as followers of Jesus then, what really defiles us is what comes out of our hearts. And God desires obedience that produces a clean heart. So we have to be very, very careful with our desires. How do we work with our desires? Do we indulge them? Do we feed our desires? Uh, how do we tend them? Do we let them grow? If they're godly desires, by all means, that's what we should cultivate. But if they are not, if we don't control them, those desires will eventually rule us, control us, and then there is no telling where we'll end up, right? Out of the heart of man come all the evil. It's what comes out from us that defiles us, makes us unclean, not what goes in. And so Jesus is, as always, absolutely right on the money when he describes human nature. Now, what does this obedience looks, look like? Uh, and Mark has left us here uh, with uh, verses 24 through 30 with an example. 
of a Gentile woman. Now think about this. This woman has three strikes against her. First of all, she's a woman in that culture. Second, she's a Gentile. Third, she has a child with an unclean spirit. Now, you have ritual impurity written all over this account. Right? So you got these Jewish Pharisees, all ceremonially pure, and you've got this woman who's a Gentile who's ceremonially, ritually impure. And Jesus is going to show this contrast here. And the contrast is really drastic. So, Jesus got up, verse 24, and went away from there to the region of Tyre, uh, etc. Verse 25, but after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So what does Jesus do? He challenges her with a test in verse 27. So when the woman asks for healing, he says, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he says, look, I have come to take care of the Jewish people first. That's my priority. And after it is done, yes, I'm going to deal with the Gentiles. Right? So it's a test that God presents to, um, to this, this woman. And she aces the test because she says, yes, Lord. And that's, I think, the only time when a human being expresses, I mean, expresses or says the word Lord to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, other than reference to other scriptures. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So she says, look, I don't need the bread. Even the crumbs that flow off the table, that's all I need. Give me a few crumbs, that's all I need, Jesus. Because if I have them, my daughter will be made whole. Contrast that with the disciples in chapter 6, 52. 51, and he got into the boat, this is after the storm, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. These disciples were astonished. Why? For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So you've got these disciples hanging out with Jesus, no insight, can't figure out what's going on. Here's a Gentile woman, absolutely gets it. And in Mark, typically, most of the instances where Mark describes a, a woman, uh, the, wo the, the women are presented as models of discipleship. Typically, most of them, if you look through that. So, this is the contrast. Those who are ceremonially pure and everything, they don't get it. But somebody who's totally impure, if you will, gets it. And then you find Jesus commending her. He says, because of this answer, go your way. Now, you would have thought he'd say, woman, because of your faith, your daughter is made whole. But that's not what he said. Her faith produced this answer. She could not say what she said if she didn't really believe who Jesus was. It's her faith that produced this answer. Out of her heart came not evil thoughts or evil actions, but out of her heart came the word 
that was an expression of her faith. And Jesus says, great. And see what the woman did. She immediately obeyed. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. No second opinion, no MRIs, no visit to the pharmacy, no essential oils, none of that stuff. Right? So she is completely healed. Obedience at the first step. That's what Jesus commends. So as followers of Jesus, what defiles us is what comes out of our, our, our hearts. Obedience in the little things and the big things of life is what will cleanse our hearts. If the Bible says, let your conversation be seasoned with grace, let's make sure and obey that. That every word that comes out is edifying, that builds up, is seasoned with grace. It provides flavor to life rather than destroy and break down. Right? This is the kind of obedience we're talking about. We're not talking about some big decisions as to what you're doing, going to do with your life. We're talking of obedience at the normal life level. So let's focus on that. An obedience that flows because we trust what God says, even when it's difficult. We're going to trust what God says and obey Him because that is going to be commended. That obedience is what brings out, is, is what provides the cleanliness of heart. So, let's take God seriously. Let's take His Word seriously. Let's seek to live an obedient life because that's the follower that Jesus is after. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. You define things, you make things clear, and you have left your Holy Spirit to apply these to our hearts. We pray that you would breathe life into our affections, breathe life into our desires, breathe life into what we love, so that they may be found pleasing to you. Give us the faith and the strength to obey. Obey at all costs so that we might be found to have clean hearts that you're pleased with for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus, our Lord's precious name.